So the first um, few verses are from Genesis 43, verses 32 to 34. This is at a meal. They served him, Joseph, by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for it is detestable for Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. And now we go on to Luke 45, verses 3. Oh, Genesis, I beg your pardon. Uh, Genesis 45, verses 3 to 11. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now, hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have, I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. So we go on to Luke 6 now, verses 27 to 38. Love for enemies. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give everyone who asks, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do 
to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured out to you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Christine. So we welcome the Reverend Dr. David in Stonebrewer to bring our reflections to us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that David's words are your words to us this morning. We pray that you would speak to our minds, to our hearts, and that we would go away changed in our thoughts, in our words, and our actions today. Amen. Good morning. I was asked if I could say something about myself, and uh, that's always easy. I love talking about myself. But uh, what I I think really you wanted was to hear about Tyndale House, where I work. Uh, Have you all got one of these? Uh, Enid will pass some round in a minute. Um, Tyndale House is a biblical studies uh, institute uh, in Cambridge where we study the Bible. Uh, And I remember one person, as I explained this to, said, uh, I thought that would be finished by now. (laughs) There's lots and lots to do. Uh, In particular, I work on uh, a website called Step Bible, uh, where you can hover over words and see the Greek and Hebrew behind it, so you can... Read, the, read it in its original without having to know any Greek or Hebrew. And when you click on a word, you find all the places where that Greek or Hebrew word occurs, but in English or in Japanese or in Arabic or in whatever language you use. If you open up the sites in Saudi Arabia, it opens in Arabic. If you open it in Hong Kong, it opens in traditional Chinese. And so everyone can get to their own Bible and understand the background and understand what the text is behind it. That's uh, one thing I work on in particular. My my expertise is in rabbinic backgrounds, that's the ancient rabbis and how they understood the Bible. So often when I'm preaching, I mention these rabbis as old friends because uh, that's what they are to me. And other people are working on other specialties. Uh, You'll see this this, uh, um, magazine of uh, TH Inc, Think, haha, is... uh, it's got a special article all about the versification of the Bible. Who put the verses into the Bible? Who divides it up into chapters? And uh, there's a lot of problems with the New Testament verses in particular because the first person who did it, Bezai, uh, did it on horseback. And I think he just... 
missed in a lot of places. So other people had to go back later and move the verses into the proper places, and then other people disagreed about exactly where it is. That's why sometimes <laughs> your Bible will have a verse starting in a different place than another person's Bible. It's, it's so nerdy, isn't it? But that, that's what Tyndale House is. It's a, it's a place full of Bible nerds who are producing good Bible scholarship so that we can understand what the text meant then so that we can apply it now. That's enough, isn't it? That's yeah. Uh, so we're, we're looking at Jesus' words and uh, the, the story of Joseph along with it. And when we read these words of Jesus, we just feel defensive. You know, we, we, we don't really love our neighbours, let alone our enemies. And uh, we want to justify ourselves. Like that young lawyer, when uh, he uh, was asked what's the best commandments, what's the most important ones, and he's told, uh, love your neighbours, yourself, and love the Lord your God. And he he's, wants to defend himself. And he says, well, who is my neighbour? And he just wished he hadn't asked, because he, then he gets the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he knows very certainly his neighbour that he should be loving is right there. But when we, end, when we read these words by Jesus, we end up asking the same sort of thing. Well, who is my enemy? Who is my enemy? Is it a, a nameless member of ISIS, off in some country that we don't really know how to pronounce? Or is it a terrorist who wants to bring that war onto our doorstep? Or is it someone down the road who lets his cat put things on our doorstep? Or is it an immigrant who wants to put his bedroll on our doorstep? Who are you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> of course, we know the answer. But we tell ourselves that Jesus is just being impractical about this loving your enemy, Thalark. Or he's being mystical or proverbial. Anything but literal. Because that simply wouldn't work, we say. <clears throat> Let me help you to hear it like Jesus' first audience would have heard it, uh, the Jews who were listening to him. Because they knew the Old Testament, and they knew that love your neighbour is in the Old Testament. It's there in Leviticus, Leviticus 19. And though, even those severe and unloving, very legalistic Jews who thought that the people in Jerusalem were too lackadaisical, so they went off into the desert and lived in the Dead Sea. Even those Jews knew about that commandment, love your neighbour, because it was right next to their favourite commandment. And their favourite commandment was Leviticus 19.17. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour, frankly, so that you do not share in their guilt. That was their favourite verse. They mentioned it often and they commented on it and expounded it. They probably understood love your neighbour, which comes right after that, in terms of this do not hate your neighbour. And what they understood by this was if you saw someone doing something wrong, tell them. Tell them their fault. If you see something, point it out because that will make sure they don't do it again. And if they do make that same mistake again and you haven't told them, it's your fault that they've done it because you didn't warn them. So, they would say, if you see someone putting cardboard in a non-recycled bin, tell them. Yeah. If you see them crossing the streets when the red light is still there, tell them. If they are overtaking another car and breaking the speed limit, tell them. 
don't do it, don't do it. That, that's just what they would say. <laughs> that's uh, their interpretation of that verse. Uh, we all know people who love to point out faults because it makes them feel good. But on the other hand, we hold back when we should be pointing out some real faults. You know, that, that married colleague who's clearly chatting up the new intern. We don't say anything. Or the friend who boasts about escaping VAT by paying cash. We don't say anything. We keep quiet because we don't want to make an enemy. But this is one way in which the Bible tells us to love our neighbour. I, I remember I, I did make an enemy of someone at Tyndall House Library. Uh, you could always tell when he was in the library, even though you couldn't see him, he was at his desk, because you could smell him. Oh, it was terrible. I'd come in in the morning and say, oh yeah, so-and-so's there already. And everyone knew, that, well, everyone knew who it was, because as soon as you go close to him, you could see where the smell was coming from. He, he was a widower. He was living on his own. No one was there to tell him. My boss said, put a deodorant on his desk surreptitiously, and he'll take the hint. But I knew that wouldn't work. <laughs> He'd just say, whose is this? <laughs> what is it? And he was a very blunt person, so I decided to talk to him privately. So I took him to one side and said, look, you know, uh, there's a problem. And I, I thought after that he would just sort of uh, wash well and uh, deodorize himself and everyone would be happy. Uh, instead, he grew angry with me. He was so mad that I would be so rude to him. And after that, he did wash well. He did deodorize. He made friends, except for me. He hardly ever spoke. To, he didn't speak to me at all for ages. So I made an enemy, but he made lots of friends. Jesus assumed this hearers had a saying, hate your enemies. Do you remember back in Matthew 5, where he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The Jews had a saying, hate your enemy. You won't find that in the Bible. They didn't get it out of the Old Testament. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Old Testament. You might think it does, but no, you won't find it there. We often have a blinkered view of the Old Testament. We think it's the testament of hate. Unfortunately, we've swallowed some of the anti-biblical propaganda. The saying doesn't come from the Old Testament, but the saying does come from those Jews who lived at the Dead Sea. There, they really did hate their enemies. They felt they were on the Lord's side by doing so. You remember Aaron's blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. They turned that round for their enemies and made an opposite of it. The Lord curse you and send you away. The Lord send you into darkness and despair. The Lord turn his face away from you and send you calamity. And then they made a longer version and a longer version. They loved cursing their enemies. They hated those enemies with righteous hatred. In the Old Testament, enemies were actually treated more fairly by Israel than the surrounding nations. And God's law told them to look after even their enemies. Certainly when Israel went into 
the, the land, there was a lot of bloodshed. But actually, when you read the details, you find the story has been kind of twisted. There were two rules of engagement in Deuteronomy 7, sorry, Deuteronomy 20. One was for cities a long way away. There, if they attacked you, yes, you went and you killed their soldiers, but you didn't touch anyone else. They were a long way away. It didn't matter. You just, if they attacked you, you defended yourself. If the city was right next to you, and they attacked you, well then, yes, you did have to kill everyone, unfortunately, because they didn't have internment camps to keep people in and stop them from, attack from killing you in the night. And if even the children, they're going to grow up and with a culture of uh, revenge, they're going to have to revenge their fathers who were killed by you and kill you in the night. So unfortunately, for those cities that attacked, they had to wipe them out. But that only happened four times. Only four cities, according to the, uh, the details that you find in Joshua. And actually, when you... you know, what, I've got the names of cities here somewhere. Start... I'm lost. Uh, it comes from not following your notes, doesn't it? The, the, um, I am lost. Oh, yeah, yeah, here they are. Jericho and AI, you know. Lachish, uh, that uh, the archaeologists tell us about. So that isn't actually named in the Bible. And Hazor. Just four cities. And the archaeologists confirm this. And some people say, oh, well, that just shows that they didn't do what the, God had told them to do. God didn't tell them to wipe out everyone. God told them to fight those who fought them. And they had to do it on four occasions. Uh, of course, that doesn't justify bloodshed. But it did at least limit it. Uh, I, I suppose... Um, it, the people did fight the Israelites because they were provoked by them. What do you, else do you do when a, an army turns up? They weren't turning up in their land because of the land of Israel. Of course, it was just a whole load of city-states with a little bit of farming area around each city. There was plenty of other land for them to live in. But what do you do if an army comes near you? You, at you attack. So there was provocation. And the only thing the law of God could do was limit that bloodshed. And as far as we can see, it did. And it did make a difference to Israel. It made a difference to the way in which they acted. So later in 1 Kings 20, when the king of Syria is worried about Israel and they're going to get whooped, the advisors say to him, let's surrender because we know the kings of Israel are merciful. Compared to the ways in which other people acted against their enemies, Israel had learned that mercy. And, and the laws about foreigners in the land of Israel are surprising. There, there are two types of foreigners. There's the ger and there's a nokri. Now, a ger is a foreigner who comes and becomes one of you. And uh, a lot of ger uh, even got circumcised and they were able to join in with all the festivities and so they became proper Jews. Nokri are those foreigners who remain foreign and they keep all their foreign ways and their foreign gods. And uh, the both of them had rights, legal rights in the country, and both of them were allowed to enjoy all the facilities of the country. And uh, the, the Nokri were even allowed to live there and not have to keep the religious, religious laws. So in a sense, you're better off being a foreign foreigner in Israel. As it says in that same passage where it says, love your neighbor, it says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not ill-treat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. They must be treated in the same way as someone who's born in the country. Love them. 
as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And that reminds us of that story of Joseph. Gone off, sold into slavery, as was introduced to us in Egypt. And then made his way from slavery up through the ranks, as you put it. <laughs> it's a great one. Yeah, from a slumdog to millionaire. Uh, and became the advisor to Pharaoh. And then when his brothers came begging for food because there was a famine, they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize his Egyptian haircut. They didn't recognize his Egyptian clothes. And he invited them to a banquet, which really worried them. And we heard the Egyptians and the Israelites had to eat separately. Because, as it says, Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians, to actually eat at the same table. I mean, you don't know where their hands have been, do you? Ugh, foreign people. And Joseph's brothers were detestable to the other Egyptians. Nevertheless, when Pharaoh heard that his favourite Joseph had a family, he said, let them come, let them live in Egypt. And uh, they were sensible enough to go off to Goshen, up to the north, where the rest of the Egyptians could ignore them. But after time, as Joseph was forgotten, they got suspicious of these foreigners in their midst and enslaved them. And then, of course, the story goes on as we remember. Because if they treated them nicely, other people from surrounding nations might hear and they might come. They might think they've got a right to come and live in this nice country suddenly this starts to feel uncomfortably close to home with lots of immigrants wanting to come and live in our nice country. All those immigrants that we enticed here to come and work in the 60s when we needed labour who arrived on, from our colonies on ships called the Windrush and other ships like that. And then they worked hard to save up money in order to go back home where it was warm because this is a difficult country to live in. But some of them had children who became doctors and nurses and pharmacists and, or stayed unskilled and did other dirty work. And they stayed. And then we needed more and people came from Portugal and Italy and Albania and Poland, Romania. And statisticians tell us these immigrants are good for our economy. They pay more taxes than on average. They do less crime than on average. They have children, which we need. Uh, we still have a shortage of workers, from doctors to fruit pickers. We've got a shortage. And now comes Brexit. And suddenly, we feel free to express our anti-immigrant feelings because everyone else is doing it. In the Home Office, Mrs May established a policy of hostility to immigrants, an official policy. And immigrants have heard about this, and they're put off. We've still got thousands of vacancies for nurses, but far fewer applicants. Because why would they come? A huge portion of our Polish population have gone. Where are you going to get a plumber now? There are lots of people who are desperate and who do want to come to this country, but 
if they have a choice, if they're not desperate, they often choose to go elsewhere where they know they're going to be welcomed. There's a Dutch co-worker uh, who works with me in the office next door. He's been here for 20 years. His children are born here. They work here. Uh, his wife told me as she was walking her dog along with other friends who uh, walk dogs together. And um, one of them said to her, well, when are you going to go home? It's a climate that's grown in this country insidiously. I'm proud of the fact that London is the most cosmopolitan city in the world. Newsweek said that there are 200 languages spoken in London, more than in New York or anywhere else. I love it when I travel on a London tube and everyone seems to come from a different country. I, I love the interaction with different scholars in Tyndale House. One day at coffee, I counted 17 different nationalities in that small coffee lounge. 17. I remember one day introducing a, a Jewish professor from Jerusalem to a Christian from Syria and a Christian from Iraq. And the three of them talking together more or less peacefully. We should be welcoming people. We should be interacting with people. We should be loving our enemies. I'm ashamed that a president backed by evangelical Christians is anti-immigrant. I'm ashamed that a prime minister who is known to go to church regularly is anti-immigrant. And yet the non-religious Médecins Sans Frontières will help anyone, anywhere. Blatantly non-religious. I'm so glad that we've got organisations like Compassion that say, yes, we're Christians and we love people and we're going to help them irrespective of what their religious background is. It won't fulfil the commandment of loving our enemies to change this, we'll be, but we'll be doing a little bit. If we welcomed immigrants, we wouldn't be loving our enemies to our detriments. The statisticians tell us actually it would help us. And, but it goes a small way if we can welcome those who actually do make it. And if we stand with them. And if we raise our voice when that little Englander starts spouting prejudice. Perhaps we'll make a few enemies that way, but hey, then we'll have more people to love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our friends, and we thank you also for those that we consider enemies who want to do us harm. And we thank you for all those in between those who we haven't made friends with and who just want to get on with life. Help us, Father, to see them as you see them, who gives them rain and sunshine and you love them. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>